And as you are, take your Bibles again and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll read the first 11 verses. Philippians chapter 1. The title of the sermon tonight is The Church as Communing Saints. And that's exactly what this is about. As Paul introduces by way of a thanksgiving and a prayer in this epistle to this church that he had been involved in establishing in this Roman colony of Philippi. Follow along again. God's inerrant, infallible word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures always. Father, thank you for that truth. Thank you for the reality that this word sets before us. We're mindful that so many live in a fictional world. We have an entire industry an entire industry that is all about presenting fictional life and how sad it is that it's influenced generations to where many even now live fictional lives instead of lives of real abundant life. We ask that tonight after leaving here we would be among those who, who live the abundant life, who live as the church, saints communing with one another in union with Christ. We ask this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. During the second missionary journey, and you read about this in the book of Acts, uh, Paul spent time at this Roman enclave, this little city that was uh, a Roman city, Philippi. And uh, one of the things that he was able to do Uh, along with his partner on that trip, Silas, was to establish a congregation. And he begins writing to them 
to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi. And then he, he says, with the overseers or the, the bishops or the elders, you know, those are all synonyms, and the deacons. This is a letter he's writing later. You, you'll remember when you read through Acts, on this same trip when the church at Philippi was established, that's when he was thrown into prison. And at midnight, he and Silas were singing, uh, singing the hymns of, to God. And uh, they were freed. And the jailer was frightened. And the Philippian jailer was converted through the testimony of Paul and Silas. He saw that they were not scared, and uh, he wanted to know why. And the reason they weren't is because Christ Jesus was all he needed, all they needed. Well, now he's writing to them later, and he's in prison again. Now, here's where we're not sure if which imprisonment this was, whether it's the time he was imprisoned at Caesarea, Philippi, uh, or whether it was when he was in Rome. So either chapter 23 of Acts or chapter 28 of Acts. It doesn't matter. Flip a coin if you really matters to you. Just flip a coin and decide which one because no one knows for sure it doesn't matter. We just simply know that from that, that jail cell... He wrote a number of prison letters, as they're called, and this is one of them. And he doesn't anywhere in this do the woe is me thing. And so he's writing, and he writes to this church. And it's an excellent treatise, and it's a wonderful microcosm for the church today. And so as, as we just begin these first 11 verses today. That's all we're going to look at. Uh, and we think about this being the first Lord's Day of a new year, second day of a, of a new year. Uh, had my mom lived, she'd be 97 today. Um, and this uh, new year that we're, we're embarking upon and just consider as a church and as individual members of this body of Christ uh, these three little points that you have there. The church rests upon God's gifts, the church resides in God's people, and the church redounds to God's glory. These three points should provide a wonderful setting then for us to live this, this new history that we're about to be making over the coming hours and days and weeks and months. So let's go ahead and get started. The church rests upon God's gifts. Notice right here at the beginning, Paul says to the saints, as I've already read, grace to you and peace from God our Father. You notice before he writes anything of substance, you know, in teaching church history through the years, Sometimes you have students who uh, aren't as keen on learning the history as they are about doing the systematic theology courses. And it's like they want to get on to something more important. 
And I always have to remind them, what's more important than what God has done and is doing? I mean, there's a sense in which, as I've told you in here, when I preach through the book of Ruth, God's history teaches us theology. We learn some of our best theology in those historical books of the Old Testament. And so it's good for us to be reminded that while this is substance, a lot of people just say, okay, Paul, get on to it. And that's the reason often verses like Philippians 1, 2 are just kind of passed over. Well, sadly, because of what I'm doing tonight, I'm going to sort of kind of pass over them. But I have in the past, as you know, just lodged on those introductory verses and we've fleshed out grace and peace. And so tonight I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be a reminding you what Paul's doing here. But but the main thing he's doing is he's starting at the very foundation. This is the foundation. The church rests at this point on the grace of God. Grace and peace to you. And notice he's not talking about the grace past. He's talking about the grace now. Yeah, Paul's going to talk about, in fact, he, he does in this verse. In verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. That's the grace past. But he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's the grace future. But now, right here in the beginning, he's saying grace to you. May the Lord's grace be lavished upon you. His unmerited favor be upon you. And then he logically moves to peace. Grace is the thing we need every day over and over and over. Every morning, every noon, every night, God's grace. Now don't forget, I said this recently in a sermon, don't forget we can so... Mm. We, we, can, we can make grace almost an undefinable thing. But when we say grace, when Paul says grace, he's not saying anything other than may the Lord Jesus Christ be real and active in your life. When we preach the grace of the gospel, we're preaching Christ Jesus and him crucified and him raised. When we say grace to you, we're saying, may Christ dwell in you richly. That's what Paul's saying here. Then he says, logically, and peace to you. And here, we have to be really careful because if we forget that this is a whole book, and if we're prone to have that silly page divides the Old Testament from the New Testament and take it seriously. Remember, I don't have that silly page. I use it for the membership vows. It's, it's there for a purpose, not to divide the two parts of the Scripture, the Old Covenant Scriptures and the New Covenant Scriptures. But if we forget that this is one book, we'll forget to read peace in the New Testament the way we should read peace in the Old Testament. 
And peace in the Old Testament was shalom. And when a Hebrew said shalom to his fellow Hebrew, he meant, may everything you need be lavished upon you. May you have everything that you need for this life and the life to come. It wasn't just this, oh, you know, we, we get real ooey gooey about peace, right? Well, I've just had this peace come over me. Well, okay, that's fine. God can do that too, that peace that passes understanding. In fact, in fact Paul's going to close the book with that. But here at the beginning, he's talking about this peace that is all comprehensive. Everything you need, church at Philippi. From the beginning with grace and every day with grace to those everyday things you need, may you have it. Grace from God our Father, peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, somebody can stop there and say, why didn't he say the Holy Spirit too? Well, he does. We just don't have to read it. Because how are we going to realize Christ Jesus in our lives, who's seated high on the throne in the heavens, in session with the Father, even now? How are we going to realize his presence with us today unless the Holy Spirit makes it real? Hmm? But we're not. And how are we going to enjoy all the things that God is doing for us, the peace of God, everything we need, unless the Holy Spirit administers it to us and in us and through us and for us? There's no way you can get around this. Verse 2 is really a Trinitarian verse. Though the Father is mentioned and the Son is mentioned, the Holy Spirit is by implication necessary for us to recognize his presence here. So the church rests upon God's gifts, primarily those being his grace and his peace. And then he, then I, then he moves on with this. He says, he enters into this prayer, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. It's really easy, isn't it? Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a church. He's writing to an institution in a city in Asia Minor. And it's really easy for us, when we think of church, to think institutionally. Isn't it? You nod, it is. We can think institutionally, and when we think institutionally, we think, we, we, we think in a very depersonalized way. When I think of my, my cell phone, it's an apple. I, I can't even conceive a face to go with that company. It's probably better that I don't. But it's just, a, it's an institution, it's a corporation, it's impersonal. But Paul won't let the church at Philippi think of itself as an institution. He won't let them think in an 
in a depersonalized sense. It's important that we don't do that either, and we slip into it. And I'm going to tell you we do. There was a pastor once. In fact, I've, I've, I've had this before uh, in, in years, and now particularly as I'm, as I'm, I'm um, you know, when I used to, used to when I was going to the General Assembly first, you know, people would stand at the microphone to address the, the body and they'd say, dear fathers and brothers. Well, I was one of the brothers. Well, now I've been around so long, I'm one of the fathers too. But it, as, I, as I get older, I hear this more. Young ministers particularly, they'll call and they, can, can we talk for a while? Sure, what you want, what's wrong? What's going on? And, and, and they begin talking about the church and, the, and some of the problems at the church. And all of a sudden... They're talking about they are doing this and they are doing this and they want me to do this and they're talking about them and us. And I've, I've worked with sessions in the past. They've called for advice and they talk about the congregation and us. They and us. And I'm going to tell you, the first thing I say when I hear that is, Y'all got to repent. You got to get over this. You got to get beyond this. This is not an us and them thing. This church just elected a pastoral search committee to find the man that the Lord has already found to be our next associate pastor. And I want to encourage you as you pray for them, don't pray for them. Pray for us. We saw it in the sermon this morning. Daniel, we. Right? We have done this. The sins, our sins. This is, this is, this is your elders. I hope you notice when I, when I send out emails often, I refer to your elders. I want you to know. Your deacons have done this. Your deacons need this. They're your deacons. They're your elders. This is your committee. Don't make this an us and them thing. Because once you do that, then this becomes a depersonalized institution, and that's not what the church is. And that's not the way Paul writes here, is it? You don't get any of that sense in these verses. I mean, just read it. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. The first thing he says is, I thank my God for you. There's a passion that Paul has for these people. You know, he could have, he could have started this. I remember when we were establishing this church and I got thrown in prison. I was in prison and you were out there, and, but he doesn't do that. That's not the way Paul thinks. Paul thinks covenantally. He thinks in terms of the church. He thinks corporate. He thinks about us. And so he's, he's, he has this affection for the church. We see it again in, in verse 8, even more uh, particularly, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He loved these people, even though he was separated from them. 
It wasn't a him and them. He was thinking about them just as he, as if he were there the first time. And then he expresses confidence in their common union with Christ and with one another. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 6. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. He does the same thing, doesn't he, in Romans 8. Partakers. We are heirs and fellow heirs with one another. We are partakers in God's grace. We are partakers in the blessings of the Lord. When the Lord blesses his church, he doesn't pick and choose. He blesses his church. His church, not individuals. And notice, notice that he says it's not just in good times. Uh, Let's see. He says, uh, it's not just because I have all these wonderful memories. Didn't we have grand times? Didn't we enjoy our communion, the fellowship, those wonderful meals we had together, the wonderful Wednesday nights, the wonderful outings we had? But did you notice He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In the work of the church and even in those times when we suffer together. The church resides in God's people. It's not an institution. Those verses are remarkable, aren't they? I mean, we could spend a lot of time. We could spend weeks on those few verses. But just again, notice, I thank my God in remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now, I'm going to tell you, in starting a new church work, like he did with this church in Philippi, with the opposition they had from the Hebrews in Dispersia and the Roman government, everything was not joyful. Could not possibly have been joyful. Everything that they went through in establishing this church. If any of you have talked much with John already, you know, not everything that's going on, not everything that they're facing over at Christ Church is joyful. There's already been disappointments. There's been a lot of encouragement, yes, but there's been already disappointments. And there will be more. But Paul looks at this in the big picture. And we need to do that as well. Look at the big picture. And when we look at the big picture and see that even in imprisonment, even in the defense and confirmation of the gospel... We're partners. We're united to Christ. We're the church of the living God. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king of the church, has said the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. That's reason to be joyful, even in the midst of hardship, isn't it? You don't get better reasons to be joyful. So the church, rest upon the gifts of God, resides in the people of God. It's not an institution. And it redounds to the glory of God. Those last verses, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. We could just... If we had several weeks, we would just stop at each of these phrases. That your love may abound more and more. And then next week we do with knowledge and all discernment. And then we'd move to so that you may approve what is excellent. And then we'd move to so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then we'd move to fill with the spirit or the fruit rather of righteousness. That comes through Jesus Christ. You say okay. I'm not following. But your point is. That the church redounds to God's glory. Yeah. Did you see how long it took Paul. To explain. How we glorify God. I mean that's what that sentence is all about. This is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. First question of the Shorter Catechism. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does it mean to glorify God? That's what it means to glorify God. So we'd have to do a whole series to really start understanding what it means to glorify God. How is it we glorify God? Our love abounds more and more for one another. Jesus said it, didn't he? This is how they'll know you. That you're mine. That you love one another. That your love abounds more and more for one another. That's how they'll know that you're mine. And what will that do? That'll bring glory to Christ. With knowledge and all discernment. We should all be growing in our knowledge of the scriptures and of God. That's the point of gaining knowledge of scripture. There's a gentleman that I I have encounters with occasionally. He has some very interesting, uh, according to him, insights into the Bible. He has no church affiliation. He doesn't need one, according to him. And and one day he came in and he said, uh, I bet I've got something you've never thought about. I said, well, tell me what it is. So he told me. And I said, now I want you to tell me something. How does that help you love Jesus better? He got really quiet at the Chick-fil-A on that morning. I said, so if, if, this, if this is true, 
If this is really what the Bible, this passage you're talking about is saying, how does that help you know God and his son, Jesus Christ, and thereby have everlasting life? How does that help you? How would that help me? Well, he didn't know. I said, see, that's not the point. The point is not to know something no one else knows. That's what the Gnostics had in the first century and second century. Paul says, if you're going to glorify God, then you have to grow in knowledge of him. Growing in knowledge of him would bring you to glorify God. It won't just be knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And that knowledge and, and, and with knowledge comes discernment. You find someone who knows all these things. They can just quote scripture. They know scripture. And they do dumb things over and over and over. Well, that's not knowledge. That's just a bunch of facts. So that you may approve what's excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Is, is what we're doing, the way we're loving one another, the way we're, we're gaining our knowledge, the way we're acting on the knowledge we have, is it producing holiness? A pure and blameless life as we approach the day of Christ's return. Are we filled with fruit of righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ? Well, if we are, if all those things are true, then we're glorifying God. That's kind of convicting, isn't it? That it may be very easy to to quote the shorter catechism, what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And yet we may not be glorifying God. And that's what Paul was praying for them. Is that this, these people that were partakers of Christ Jesus with Paul, who were the church of the living God, that these people would live a life that glorified God. That was his prayer. That was his desire for them and for himself. And so, that's where we are tonight, as saying, oh my goodness, we're a people, we're a people as the church of the living God who enjoy resting. You know, one of the, when you go to the Shorter Catechism, the definition of what is saving faith is resting, receiving and resting upon Christ. The church is resting upon Christ, resting upon the grace of Christ Jesus and his peace. The Prince of Peace. The church is his people. It's not us. It's not them. It's not the pastor. It's not the elders. It's, it's us. We're the body of Christ. 
and our whole purpose is to glorify and praise God forever. If we, if we will, if we'll take these verses and those three little points, this could become, in a new year of history, this could become a historic year. Don't you think? Let's pray that it would be. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful evening and ask now that you would bless and keep your people. That we would rest in your gifts and that we would indeed recognize that we are, we are the church. That we are a people who, by the way we love one another and the, by, by the way we grow in our knowledge, by the way we we. we we look at all things and, and, and judge things and judge between that which is excellent and that which is not. The way that we, we grow in purity and blameless lives and the way that we continue being filled with righteousness. That we bring great glory to you. That's our prayer. Thank you for making us partakers. Thank you. That indeed, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on that last great day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.